tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to an hour of fun and frolic with the scriptures, but I'm not taking phone calls today. I'm going to do a letter show, catch up on my letters, and uh, uh, we'll, God willing, be back tomorrow taking phone calls, but let us, let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's do it. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. And... This is the book of Zephaniah, which is a is one of those Old Testament prophets. The the again, this is uh, something that we have very consistently in the uh, uh, texts for Lent. The the uh, the prophecies about God's faithfulness to Jerusalem, and this is this is uh, Zephaniah and. Uh, uh, he was a prophet in Judah during the times of uh, uh, Ammon and Manasseh. So t- toward the end of of things, uh, uh, around oh around 650 BC, that's when Zephaniah prophesied. And uh, he he, uh, I think it was Zephaniah that I was reading once um, about. It was just a beautiful experience that I think I've shared with you. First time I was in Jerusalem, and uh, uh, I was lost in the old city. Uh, um, uh, it's like a maze, uh, the Jewish quarter. It was destroyed uh, during the 1948 wars, and in 1967, when the Jews took back uh, Jerusalem, they, they rebuilt it. Um, and it's like a maze. Um, I was totally lost, and I sat down in a little uh, plaza, and I was had the Bible with me, and I just opened the Bible at at, at random. Well, <laughs> I'm, it was actually Zechariah that I, I think this uh, uh, that this prophecy was from. But I just opened the book at random, and 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 the prophecy said uh, it's Zechariah, not Zephaniah. I got that wrong, but I'll still share it because it was beautiful. Um, it said that old men and women will again sit along the streets of Jerusalem uh, and the streets of the city will be filled with children playing there. 
And it was as if it a signal. The mothers all came to the windows and shouted for their kids to come in to, to uh, uh, dinner. And lo and behold, um, I realized I was watching biblical prophecy fulfilled. So, uh, again, I, I say this. I said it yesterday. I'll say it again today, that if God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. Um, I will change and purify the lips of the peoples that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And as far as the recesses of the north, they shall bring me offerings. Uh, That's from the reading uh, this morning. And if you go to the airport uh, in Tel Aviv, the whole world is getting off a plane to go to Jerusalem. I mean, it just astonishes me that this little one-horse town that was the capital of nowhere at all important uh, is the focal point of of billions of people uh, and it's amazing on that day you need not be ashamed of all your deeds i will remove from yourself the from your midst the proud braggarts uh, i will leave a remnant in your midst of people humble and lowly who will take refuge in the name of the lord these are the promises of god and God has fulfilled his promises in part in our time, but he will fulfill them completely at some point. And you can count on that. If God makes a promise, again, I say it, he's going to keep it. Now, let us go to the gospel, because that talks about promises, too. Not such good promises. Uh, Well, I suppose they're ultimately good. Uh, um, Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, What is your opinion? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son said in reply, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. The man came to the other son and gave the same order. He said in reply, Yes, sir, but did not go. Which of the the two did the father's will? You know, we somehow are such romantics in this country. We think Americans were hard-headed and practical. We're not. We're the most romantic people in the world. We, If we don't feel it isn't real, honey, I don't feel love for you anymore. I'm, we're getting a divorce, that kind of thing. We're all about feelings. If I feel <laughs> I'm this gender or that gender or none of the above, that's what's real. We are not realists. We live in, in the clouds. Um we say, well, I, I'd like to help you. So I feel good about me because I'd like to help you. Love is not what you feel. Love is what you do. To love is to will the good of another. I'm willing your good. I'm not going to do anything, but I'm willing your good. That's nonsense. If I really will your good, I'm going to do whatever I can do uh, to bless you and to, to give you a benefit so this idea of, of, of love being a feeling, love isn't a feeling. It may be accompanied by feelings. It may be preceded and followed by feelings. But love is not a feeling. Love is what you do. Um, so which of the children did the father's will? The one who did what he said. Uh, um, so... Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are into the kingdom of God before you. Now, again, you must be so tired of hearing me say it. But when we talk about entering the kingdom of God, I don't think we're talking about going to heaven. It includes going to heaven. But the kingdom of God is, is, uh, is I believe, really God's royal nature that, that 
Basilea means royalness. They're entering the royalness of God. You see, God wants us to inherit his very nature. That's why he adopts us. God doesn't just want us to go to heaven. God wants us to enter into that relationship, which is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are adopted by God, and we become princes and princesses of his kingdom. So this inheritance of God's very nature is only possible if we allow ourselves to be conformed to the image of Christ. So this idea that tax collectors and prostitutes, I mean, they're unclean. Tax collectors were, let me explain tax collecting in the ancient uh, uh, Greco-Roman world. Tax collectors were automatically excommunicated as being unclean. They had to deal with Romans, and they were always going to places where there were Roman gods, but that wasn't the issue. The Romans were smart. They had what they called a tax farming system. Now, it had been reformed around the time of Christ, maybe a little before, but not very reformed. The Romans would auction off um, uh, the position of tax collector in a certain place, and if you, if the Romans said, um, we need uh, um, uh, 100,000 denarii from this town in taxes, well, I'll get you 150,000 denarii, or I'll get you 170,000 denarii. In other words, the person who made the the highest bid got the position of tax collector. And, of course, he had the power and the authority, the might of Rome, to... Um, uh, to execute uh, his will, if he collected more than the 100,000 denarii, or more than 150,000, let's say he'd promised, he got to keep the excess. If he collected less than he had promised, he had to pay out of his own resources. So it was pretty iffy. Uh, it was the tax farming system. So somebody comes up and says, I can't pay the tax that you've assessed me. So, well, you got 10 kids, sell one of them. In other words, a tax collector was someone who sold uh, widows and orphans into slavery. They were despicable. And the fact that Jesus would hang around with these tax collectors. Also, the Romans, at least as I understood it, the Romans were smart enough uh, to, to try to get uh, local people to do the tax collecting. In other words, they would have Jews collect from Jews. They would have Spaniards collect from Spaniards, Arabs collect from Arabs. Uh, so that you didn't hate the Romans, you hated your countrymen. Remember, uh, uh, um, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was was a Jew. He was not a Roman. So it was a very clever system, and and it was very evil. Uh, the 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 taxes were could be exorbitant um, depending on the situation. So. Tax collectors were, were <laughs> lumped together with prostitutes. They had sold themselves. The tax collectors had sold, sold themselves to the Romans, and pro prostitutes sold themselves to whoever would, would buy. And these were reprehensible people. They were, they were unclean. Well, they were, they were becoming the children of God before the, 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 the religious people. And I mean, that's just crazy uh, um, that that, you know, I, I've heard it said that the only good thing about sin is that it teaches you compassion for the sinner. But I think there's a second um, dimension to sin. 
sin is 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 very wearing. Uh, uh, sinners frequently uh, end up really regretting their sins because they understand the great burden that sin is. So along comes John preaching clearly and without hesitation about the way of righteousness. And he, the clarity of his message pierced the hearts of, 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 of people who, who were caught in sin. Uh, you know, oh, this is just another aside. We live in an era in which we want to tell people they're not really sinners. And they are. We are. That, that we want to say, well, that's not so bad. Yes, it is. It's terrible. It's really terrible. And you've done something awful. I don't know if you've, you've had that experience of going to confession. And there's something that has just grieved your soul. And the confessor says, oh, that's not so bad. And you know it is. Uh, and I think we, the clergy, do a disservice to people when we minimize their sense of repentance. I always think that that great uh, passage from St. Augustine in which he grieves years later about stealing a pear. He stole a pear. What kid hasn't stolen a piece of fruit from an orchard? Augustine grieved over it. Well, big deal. Get over it, Augustine. No, Augustine realized that was the small tip of a large iceberg, that he was... He was uh, uninterested in in uh in 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 goodness as, as a young man he he was all about himself and that pair was symbolic of of his self-absorption and it it was a real sin because it, it it kind of represented all the sins that were in the heart of augustine so this idea of of tax collectors and prostitutes entering into the royal inheritance of god before the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, uh, that, that's it. Uh, it's just astonishing. Well, not the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's the, the chief priests and the elders of the people. The elders, uh, are the, these are the two governmental wings of Israelite life. Uh, to be a priest, and that word means someone who offers sacrifice. Um, perhaps I should make that the word. I will make that the word that I'll explain it again. I've explained it, but, but priests were not ordained. They were initiated, consecrated into their ministries, but you were a priest. If your father was a priest, if you were descended from Aaron, the elders were elected. These were the, the people who governed Israel on the ground. They were kind of the synagogue, uh, uh, governance boards. And they, they were, you know, the, the day-to-day -day arbiters of difficulties among the people. Uh, chief priests, uh, they were very respected. They were the great nobility. They were um, definitely uh, upper class. So these are the two wings of government. And you're saying that we're not worthy of God's nature? We're the ones who tell you what God's nature is. But you see, sometimes... Uh, God's nature appears in the darndest places. And I, I think we need to be uh, aware of that, that um, uh, I, I think of, of when, when the, this same bunch of people came up to Jesus and, and said, uh, is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, I think there were Pharisees in that group. And Jesus said, give me the coin of tribute. And he had them the minute they pulled out a coin because 
no Jew will, no Orthodox Jew would willingly have the image of a pagan god in their possession. Uh, I've known Orthodox Jews who wouldn't come into a Catholic church or a rectory, or they would hide their eyes when they would see me. I've actually had this happen. They would hide their eyes when they would see me, lest I be wearing a crucifix, because that is an idol as far as they're concerned. And they don't even want to look on an idol. So, well, they pull the coin out, and what's on the coin? Picture of the divine Caesar, and on the back, the flip side, maybe the goddess of Rome, the goddess Roma. Um, different gods and goddesses were on the coinage. They were caring about the image of a pagan god. He had him right there. And he said, whose image is this? Caesar's image. Well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That coin belongs to him. He printed it. You use Caesar's roads, his sea lanes, his, his, um, his police. You, you, you live in a world where you can trade and, and do business because of, of the order imposed by the Romans. So render to Caesar what's Caesar's, but render to God what's God's. The coinage of God. What is, in the, what is the coinage of God? Well, where, where is the image of God? In his own image he made them. Male and female he made them. Every human being you meet is God's coinage and belongs to God. And you may look down on this person of that religion or lack of religion. You may think that that you are morally superior. I may look at them and think that I'm morally superior. But God doesn't look at us that way. He looks at us as his children. And he is grieved by those children who are far away. The son who who doesn't go out to the vineyard when asked. Uh, well, you know, when I meet someone and I think, oh, I don't like this person, or I, 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 uh, uh, I'm, I'm better than this person, the Holy Spirit reminds me that I should pray regularly. Help me to see this person as you see them. There's not a person you're going to meet in the day, in, in, in your day, in your 24 hours. There's not a person you're going to meet who is not made in the image and likeness of God, even though that image and likeness may be buried deeply under sin and, and suffering, but it's still there. And to reverence the image of God in another human being by courtesy, by kindness, by concern. And, and this is a wonderful, wonderful gift that you can give to the Lord. You know, uh, I may say, boy, uh, there's nothing you can do for me, but help my kids. You know, if, if, if you protect someone's children, you're good to someone's children, that's even more wonderful than doing something good for them. I mean, if you're a parent, you are so grateful when people are good and kind and protective of your children. Uh, how much more the Heavenly Father is is interested is pleased by your loving his children and recognizing his image in them you know instead of saying well tax collectors prostitutes terrible 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 yeah it is they are terrible and let's back up a little son go out work in the vineyard what is the vineyard the vineyard is the lord's the lord's plantation the vineyard is 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 the Lord's, uh, the Lord's garden. And when I hear the word vineyard, I think of, of the work of, of evangelism. I think of the work of bringing people to the saving knowledge of Christ. And, and 
you know, if I just sit in the church and am, you know, I'm just marvelously pious, this is a good thing. But if I am not the kind of person who draws others to the Lord, well, then I'm not I'm not going out into the vineyard. That these people who the the scribes and the elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees deprecated, these were the planting of God. And they wouldn't go work in the vineyard. They only wanted to drink the wine. Uh, so when we hear this parable, we have to understand that that we are in the world not for our own sake. God hasn't given us his grace in this world just for our own sake. He's given us his grace and his love in this world that we might share it with others. The way we live, the way we treat other people, the Father hopes that Christians will have the best reputation of anyone uh, with whom they with whom they come in contact. Uh, that people will say, those Christians, they are just wonderful. What do they say about us now? Oh, we're mean and we fight with each other. And uh, they don't see Christ in us. Uh, they don't see Christ in us. The Romans, what converted the Romans and, 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 and the Greeks? The power of God working among Christians, exorcism was one of the big deals that, that we read about, say, uh, St. Gregory the Wonder Worker. He went through places and the demons fled. It was obvious that when Gregory the Wonder Worker was, was there, that people's lives were changed. And then they also said, see these Christians, how they love one another. Well, <laughs> the world in which we're living now can say, see these Christians, how they argue with each other. That, that we are so much more interested in, in our religiosity than we are in working in the vineyard. I'm not saying that personal piety and good theology are not important, but they're the servants of, of, of the love of God. Um, that, that people like the tax collectors and prostitutes in this story, well, they, they, uh, they saw in John the truth unvarnished. He preached the truth and they were overcome by the truth. They realized what he was saying was real and uh, they just, they just couldn't stand the weight of their own sins anymore. Uh, and they repented, uh, and repenting. They had come to understand the weakness of people and the great love of God for them. So let us pray that we can, we, we too can, can give an example of, of God's great and honest love, that we can speak the truth. Abortion's evil. This gender madness is, is damaging to children and to society. We can speak the truth, but do it with love. St. Paul talks about, in Letter of the Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, that, uh, I, I guess I'm on a roll here. Well, I'll finish with this. It is wrong to speak the truth without love. It is wrong to love without speaking the truth. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Are you doing it with love? They can't hear it if you don't do it with genuine concern for them. Well, I don't want to upset you, dear, but I want to support you in this self-destructive, crazy behavior. I love you. You understand? If I do that, I, I love without speaking the truth. It isn't love. If I speak the truth without love, it isn't the truth. To speak the truth in love, to say things in a way that is utterly honest as did John the Baptist, but then to take people who hear that truth into the embrace of the faithful. 
that's the deal. All right, enough. Let's go to a break. We'll come back with, uh, I'm going to go straight to letters. We'll come back with some letters, and then we'll do a word of the day and some more letters. We'll be right back. We receive hundreds of your phone calls every day, thanks to the Catholic Order of Foresters studio line. Our sponsor offers flexible life insurance and annuities. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester today. An Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. People get ready. There's a train a coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. Let's go to letters. This letter is from, I suppose you pronounce the, the name Eli. I've... I say Eli, I know, Rabbi Eli, but Eli. Um, and what is the difference between a sermon and a homily? Or are they synonyms? Um, no, <laughs> they're not synonyms. I say I'm giving a homily, but I'm really preaching a sermon. No, a sermon is is uh, generally thought of as something longer. It is a, uh, uh, a talk about a religious theme. A homily, uh, uh, it, I believe it comes from the Greek word for likeness, it is uh, um, a kind of, well, explanation of a scripture text, uh, and it tends to be more brief. Uh, a sermon, well, they can go on for a long time. As If you listen to the show, you may notice. Uh, what I just preached was started out as a bit of a homily, but it ended up a sermon. But a sermon is, is about, as I understand it, is about a religious theme, uh, a homily is um, um, an unpacking of the Gospels. Now, sometimes the priest skips the homily slash sermon. Is that kosher? Uh, yeah, in the daily mass it is. Um, generally, we come to expect a sermon, uh, but I don't believe it's necessary to daily mass. Uh, it is expected at a Sunday mass. In fact, is it a, a Sunday mass? I think it is required uh, uh, to to share. Or at least a reflection on the scriptures, uh, not necessarily a whole endless sermon. In fact, his homilies are much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking? Homilies are more uh, expected or encouraged than sermons uh, these days. But occasionally a good sermon is not a bad idea. So, no, on Sundays you should be having a, a homily or sermon. But maybe Father is not feeling well. That is possible, too. Okay, let's see. This is one I, I, I got a while ago, and I think I answered it, but I want to deal with it again. Can you give a message on how Christians can protect themselves against hopelessness in the Christmas season? Attacks on our feelings are tricks of the devil. This is from Adele in New Jersey, and that is very true. The holidays are hugely stressful. And I think the reason for that is that, that um, we have expectations that are unreal about the holidays. I will never forget um, a Christmas party at the home of a friend of mine. And uh, mother was, uh, well, she was frankly, the, the people involved in the story are, are gone now. So I don't, I mean, they passed away. So I don't think I'm telling stories out of school. But I will never forget that, that this woman had planned the perfect Christmas. And um, we were all to sit and listen to her children play musical instruments. Uh, because, of course, that's what you see on television, this nice little concert of children playing beautiful Christmas music while everyone just 
sits with dewy-eyed appreciation. Children playing violins and odd musical instruments, sometimes they can be compared to crimes against humanity. Well, people just wanted to visit and talk, and this woman slipped into madness at this Christmas party because it didn't work out the way she had thought it should. She was just too tightly wired. Uh, she had a complete breakdown at the Christmas party because she planned the perfect Christmas. There's no such thing as the perfect Christmas. Let us think about the first Christmas. What a mess. No room at the inn. And if the stories as we've heard them are as we've heard them, they had to go back to a barn. Barns are not the tidiest of places. In order to give birth, the poor blessed mother had to go back. And it was... It was terrifying. She had been traveling. She'd gone. That's at least the way we envision it. She'd been traveling. She'd gone into labor. She had to give birth in a filthy, stinking barn. That was the first Christmas. So if your Christmas is not picture perfect, well, good. You're in good company. The Blessed Mother and St. Joseph and our Lord. We have this kind of unrealistic view of the first Christmas. And it it is made infinitely worse by television. I think you want you want to be hopeful. Turn off the television. Um, that that the endless commercials of the glittering holiday table and the perfect uh, hostess and the wonderful food and oh, it's a mess. How can you become hopeful? I would think to make a resolution to go to daily mass as much as possible before Christmas, and to really make it a religious feast. Um, the the Remedy for hopelessness is gratitude. The remedy for hopelessness is gratitude. Uh, Philippians, the fourth chapter, we read, Make your petitions known to God with thanksgiving. I think it is very important that we learn gratitude. Uh, that that we, we um, are able... Well, I do this. When I'm, when I'm really kind of stressed, I try to remember to sit down and think of four or five things for which I'm really grateful. And just say thank you. You know, thank you, Lord, that this bill got paid. Well, there are other bills that haven't been paid. Don't think about those. Think about the one that got paid and say thank you. Uh, Thank you. I thought this was going to be a mess, but you worked it out. Um, Thank you, Lord. Uh, I was just dreading the the doctor's report on this, and it turned out to be nothing. Thank you, Lord. But I've got other stuff that is something. Don't think about that. Think of four or five things that you are great for which you are grateful. Make your petitions known to God with thanksgiving. If you think of four or five things for which you are grateful, then you realize that God has been faithful, that grace has got you safe this far, and grace will bring you home. Do you understand what I mean? Don't say, yeah, one thing went well, but there's eight things that didn't go well. Think about, did you thank God for the one thing that went well? Well, why should I? There's eight things that aren't going well. Thank him for the one thing that's going well. Then thank him for a second thing that's going well, a third thing, a fourth thing. And then you know what? Maybe the eight things won't seem so awful. So the, the, the antidote for hopelessness, I believe, is gratitude. It isn't optimism. It's gratitude. It it's understanding that God has a plan and he has worked it out so far in your life. Uh, so I, w- I would encourage trying to make the, the incarnation of Christ the center of Christmas and not the cookies and the house decorating and, and the gifts all neatly wrapped. Uh, that The voice of just said, I love cookies. So do I. You know me well. I So do I. But think about those things. 
for which you're grateful. Um, do you think our Blessed Mother said, yeah, I've become the mother of the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, but this place is a mess. <laughs> Couldn't you have found someplace better? She didn't. She didn't. Her whole concentration was in gratitude for the birth of the Son of God in that in that barn in that, in Bethlehem. So that would be my my prescription. Daily Mass, which is a concentration on the incarnation of God, that's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of, of Christ, and uh, um, and thinking about four or five things every time you pray for which you are grateful to God. All right, let's see here. Um, how are we doing time-wise, voice in my head? Okay, let's see here. This, oh, this is a letter that's, uh fools rush in, as the song says. Um, rush in, yeah, fools rush in where wise men, uh, uh, fail to go. This is somebody who I believe is in Germany at the time, Kirk, and, um, He's asking about the bishops, the German bishops. And you might have heard a lot about the German bishops. Uh, you know, there are some very fine German bishops. And I, I must say, I, I, I know a few bishops. I'm an old priest, so I've seen a lot of bishops in my life. And actually, some of them are my former students. And uh, I can honestly say that I do not personally know a bishop um, who I don't think is a a wonderful and honorable man. I, I really mean that. And of course, it's limited to bishops in the United States. I don't know any overseas bishops, any of that sort of thing. But I'm thinking of some of my students who are now bishops, and I'm so grateful that they have come to the Episcopal rank. And I would ask you to pray for them because, you know, the devil wants to neuter uh, bishops uh, in this country. And, and um, you know, we are in such great danger in this country of of uh, people wanting to legislate what we do. You know, we're, I think we're also worried about um, the idea that we will have to um, uh, serve people who we believe are are not capable of entering into sacraments, especially in marriage. I, I, I'm being a little oblique about that, but, uh, um, you know, that... that um, this, is, this is a good example. This is a good example. I cannot do a wedding without a marriage license. If I marry a couple without a marriage license issued by the state, I am committing a felony. I must have a marriage license. I'm, I'm, uh, um, I'm, I'm delegated as a, as a justice of the peace for Catholics by the state, but I must in, in my own diocese where I have faculties, I have to be in relationship to the Bishop, but, uh, if I fail to get that marriage license, or at least aside for a validation of a civil marriage, I have to get the the um, certificate of of civil marriage. If I do a wedding that the state of which the state has not approved, I'm committing a felony, uh, and there's fines in prison that go along with that, technically and supposedly. Um, I believe that is a, a violation of the separation of of, of powers that. That uh, the, the the Bill of Rights says that that the government shall make no law regarding the institution of religion. In other words, the government can't establish a religion. Well, marriage is profoundly religious, but the government has decided they can say who I can marry and who I can't. 
Um, and we're very worried that the government will say, you must marry these people or you will lose your license. And you must uh, provide em- employment benefits for these people uh, who are violating your moral code. You must disregard your moral code. There has always been a struggle between governments and religion because a government does not like it when its citizens have a loyalty stronger than the loyalty to the government. History is pockmarked with governments that have tried to uh, dictate uh, to the church, and those governments have all failed, but they keep trying. The Romans failed. The the <laughs> the the Visigoths failed. The uh, the medieval church failed, or the medieval governments failed. Um, this has been a struggle that has always gone on. Hitler ultimately failed. Stalin failed. Um, uh, but they're trying again. They will keep trying. And amazingly enough, the government, uh, by media, uh, and that's that's who rules us now. Uh, the 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 talking heads of television, uh, they determine what is legally possible. A small group, uh, in the thousands of people who we think are important because they're on television. You know, uh, that there's that program with all these women who have no particular distinction other than being good actresses or some of the mediocre actresses, but they know what's right and wrong for America, uh, being actresses. Um, it's craziness. But that's who rules us, a government by a small aristocracy of famous people. And they don't like Catholicism. And they, we are in danger of, of that battle. The same thing's going on in Germany, but it's far worse. Since the times of Charlemagne, <laughs> there has been a, a supervision of the church by the government. My, my cousin Arnold in, in Allendorf in Germany has a facsimile copy on his wall, of which he's very proud, that the citizens of this little town of Allendorf which meant the old village, that's what it was called in 800 A.D., uh, they were to provide beef cattle for the court of Charlemagne when it came to the monastery of Ziegenhain. The, the court would travel from place to place, and they would stay in the monastery, and you know they would. there was no real separation between the government and the church. And the, Charlemagne paid the bills for the church. And that, in one way or other, has been the history of Germany. And... In this day and age, the the uh, the German people, if they claim to be religious, are taxed, uh, and the tax that is taken from them by the government is given to the church. Germany has the richest church in the world, and no one goes to church in Germany. But the bishops and the bureaucracy of religion in Germany are one of the largest employers of people in the country. It's this huge disconnect, and the German bishops, this is my theory. You got to pray for them because the bottom is falling out. People are leaving the church by the busload in Germany uh, and in Europe. And the Germans are going, how will they employ the, all those people that work for the bureaucracy of religion? How will they manage? Um, there is such pressure for them to go along with what is trendy in Germany and what is trendy in Germany is immorality these days. Um, 
So we can we can condemn them, but we are not under the same pressure as they are yet. Let us pray that our bishops um, are valiant. You know, in England, when Henry VIII took over the church, there were, I think, 26 bishops in England. All but one of them said, sure, sure, your majesty, we'll sign anything you want. Only John Fisher said no, and he lost his head for it. So the pressure of the world on the leaders of the church has always been utterly incredible. In Germany, this church tax, the Kirchensteuer, it, it makes life utterly impossible. Uh, and lo and behold, um, uh, we need to pray for them um, that, that the, 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 the church of what's popular now does not prevail there and does not prevail here because I think very soon we may be in a similar boat. All right, with that optimistic statement, let's go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day and I think a few more letters. Welcome back. Welcome back. You know, I'm thinking about the German church again. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's very dear to me because, you know, I have a lot of a lot of relatives and a lot of happy memories of Germany and of German Catholicism, both here in this country and there. But um, I think that that for the American bishops, what's happening in Germany has to be a caveat that that I, I don't know any German bishops in a personal way. But, you know, we create these large bureaucracies of religion because, well, we used to have, I, I mean, chancery offices used to be a few old priests. Now there are hundreds and hundreds of, of, of people who, who uh, really are kind of bureaucracy of, of the faith. And unless they are deeply spiritual people, eventually they come to have a controlling interest, as bureaucracies do. And I think this is what's happened in Germany. That, that there are a huge number of people who work in the bureaucracies of the church, and they're calling the shots. And I think the bishops think they're calling the shots, and they're not. And I think we in this country need to be attentive to that reality, that um, the, the, the sanctity of those who work for the church, not just of the clergy, but all who work in the ministry, that's job one, that only holy people make decisions about the resources of the church and decisions about the life of the people of God. And I think the German church is a cautionary tale. All right, that said, let's go to our word of the day. Well, in the, uh, let's see here, in the word of the day, uh, there's a funny word um, in the gospel about uh, uh, that, you did not change your minds and believe in him. Uh, that idea of changing the mind, that, that, that's uh, an interesting word. I thought it'd be metanoia, which is just repent. The word repent in Greek means to change your understanding. In other words, let God teach you what the truth is and not just you. Um, understanding precedes action. If I, I always say, if I know the bridge is out, I'm not going down that road. If I don't think the bridge is out and I go speeding down that road, I'm going to end up in the river. So, uh, um, uh, I think that's an important, important, uh, 
uh, understanding. So that's metanoia. That's the word that's translated as repent. Um, well, I thought that that would be the word in the text today, and it isn't uh, 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 the word repent. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, let's see if I can find it. Where did I put it? It's, it's really the, the word, of course, now I've lost it, but I'll find it again. It's the word, it's a funny word because it means to, uh, to come back again. Um, it, it's slightly different. Let me pull it up. Okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. There it is. John came to you in a righteous way, or preaching uh, the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, uh, but uh, tax collectors and prostitutes did, and they did repent. This word is a funny word. It's metamelethete. Say that again from metamelomai. <laughs> uh, and that means really to regret. It means regret. To repent means to un change your understanding. But this, in a sense, is is the first step to change your understanding. To regret that 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 this is kind of the handmaiden of repentance. I, I really regret that I did this. You really regret that? Yeah, I, it was just the biggest, stupidest thing I ever did. It, uh, I really regret it. Um, well, when you come to regret something, as the tax collection, the prostitutes did, then you can hear God saying, let me teach you a better way. So the word that's translated in some texts, repent, or to change your mind, it means to regret. That's what the word really means in Greek. And regret for one's sins leads to repentance. You know, when you really realize this was a stupid thing, this was a bad thing, I shouldn't have done it. Well, guess what? Then then you, you have a chance of, of repentance. So, you know, um, I got a lot of regrets in my life. And to look back on why I regret it, well, that's, that's a good thing. All right, let's go to another letter here. Let's see, what have I got here? Okay. I've been looking for a piece that uh, that you wrote, Father. This is from, you know, I, I don't know if I can find it. I don't know if it's on the web anymore. It was a letter uh, I wrote about putting the tabernacle back in the middle of the church. The tabernacle was over on the side, and, and uh, uh, all the work crews would, would would lay out their stuff in front of the tabernacle, and, and uh, uh, the... Um, no, I don't know that Jesus minded that. He was in the building trades. But the photographers would always set up in front of the tabernacle, and I just got sick of it. And there was a very progressive community running the, the church when I got there. Um, <clears throat> so I wrote a letter to the parishioners saying, if nobody minds, I'm going to move the tabernacle back to the middle of the church because I'm sick of sitting on a throne that I think belongs to the Lord. Um you know, you see the church, the priest chair right up there in the middle, like the throne of Ming the Merciless, if you're old enough to remember Flash Gordon. Uh, well, nobody said boo for two weeks. And so the soup kitchen director and I just got up in the middle of the night and we, we the tabernacle was just basically a, a box on top of another box. Very poor church. It was the altar were just plywood boxes. So we moved it up to the middle. People wept for joy. But then when the progressives saw it, they said, how dare you without asking us? I asked you. Uh, two weeks I asked you. Uh, and so, well, that letter got published. Um, uh, and I, 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 so many people sent donations of gratitude that we were able to 
fix the sanctuary. It ended up being beautiful. But I, I don't know if I have that letter or, or if it's still on the web. So if anybody knows where it is, uh, I, I, this is um, uh, the letter that, that uh, Susan is looking for. Um, uh, I, I I would be grateful if I can find uh, you know find the web reference to it. So I'm asking again. I'm always asking for your help there. So Susan, if I find it, I will let you know. Okay, let's see here. Well, we are down to the 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 wire, as they say. Um, uh, let's see here. Oh, that's that's going to take a long time. That letter. So. Let's see if I've got a, a brief, a brief letter. Okay, no, uh, no, that that's going to take a long time too. Well, I'll just think about things. Yeah, that that letter was, you know, in, in it I said that only 24% of Catholics believe in the real presence. Now, I think it's still that statistic. And uh, someone corrected me and said, no, Father, 100% of Catholics believe in the real presence. In other words, if you don't believe in the real presence, that Jesus is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, you're not a Catholic. Um, <clears throat> what Drew is coming up, and I assure you that he does believe in the real presence. I know he does, so don't go anywhere.